welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and regular listeners will hopefully have noticed that we have a brand new piece of intro music. Check it out. Yeah, intro music. In fact, we have new everything at Stack. We rebranded and relaunched at the end of last week with a really exciting new website that does a much better job of showing all our videos and podcasts and interviews and other stuff, plus a new shop selling brilliant independent magazines. So if you get a spare minute or two, please do go and check it out at stackmagazines.com. And of course, let us know what you think. We are still tweaking this thing, so all comments and suggestions are very welcome. I also have an exciting new thing at home in the shape of a new baby boy. That's why we haven't had a new episode of the podcast for a while. I went off on paternity leave and then returned into the middle of a relaunch. So I literally haven't had a chance to pick up the microphone in like a month. And I'm actually going off on holiday next week. So this one is a bit of a one-off. We'll be returning with the regular weekly podcast from the end of August. But I really wanted to get this episode out as soon as possible. So I decided to release a sort of summer special. There's a brilliant exhibition on here at Somerset House called Print Tearing It Up. It's on until the 22nd of August and it is well worth a visit. It charts 100 years of British independent magazine publishing and it does a fantastic job of providing some historical context to the independent publishing stuff that we're seeing today. We just came to the end of a week-long stack takeover just next door to the space, and we finished things off with me interviewing Paul Gorman, one of the co-curators, about his process for selecting the magazines and telling this long story of British independent print. He's hugely knowledgeable and clearly a real print magazine fan too. And I was really pleased that I got the chance to ask him all the questions that had popped into my head as I walked around the exhibition. We spoke in front of a live audience on a Tuesday lunchtime, and this is the recording from that event. So I hope you enjoy it. very much. Paul, thank you for joining us in the stack room at Somerset House for, for one last day. We're, we're in here for the last day now. Oh, this is the last week of your... This is the... So we, we've done it for a week and now we're going and delayed gratification and taking over. Oh, right. So you're in good company. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and congratulations on a totally fascinating exhibition. Well, thank you very much. It was me and the co-curator of the show, Claire Catterall, who's here, senior curator at Somerset House, who uh, kind of cooked it up over a couple of years, actually. It went through various phases, and uh, we talked it through quite a lot, which I think maybe is uh, to its benefit, you know, that <laughs> we kind of considered it from every angle before we committed, and then suddenly it was uh, not a rush, but we were under the cost in terms of putting it together. Well, so I, I am really interested to know, how do you go about even beginning to whittle down like a hundred plus years of British independent <laughs> magazines. Like the, what, what, was, what were kind of your guiding lights for choosing the magazine there? Well, I'm used to editing. You know, I've been a journalist for a very long time and uh, also I produce books and uh, events and other, other uh, media 
uh, activities, which includes an enormous amount of editing. And Claire is uh, an enormously experienced and uh, great curator as well. We initially started talking about a show about the Face magazine, which was the subject of my last book, which I was in the throes of delivery at that point. But uh, we quickly decided that that would be too much of a nostalgic exercise. That magazine uh, lasted from 1980 to 2004. I was interested in years when it was an independent magazine, which was 1980 to 1999. So all quite a while ago, we realised that while we'd be celebrating this great British uh, uh, publication, it would be a nostalgia trip. And we, didn't, we weren't really interested in doing that ourselves or getting those people who are interested in nostalgia purely. Simultaneously, uh, both of us were becoming aware, you couldn't help but become aware, if you're interested in magazines, of the resurgence in uh, small, independent uh, British magazines. And in fact, you know, one of the aspects of the show is we concentrate on Britain, but of course this is part of a worldwide phenomenon. You think of Apartamento in Barcelona and New York, or the Skirt Chronicles in Paris, there is a resurgence around the Western world at least. And so um, we decided to focus on those key titles. We had to be selective from the contemporary scene and then also put them in the context in which they were are being produced so that we knew for a start, we quickly agreed that our starting point would be Blast, the literary and arts magazine produced by the Circle of Vorticists funded by Wyndham Lewis on the cusp of the First World War. And then it was a matter of creating a bunch of lily pads which we could hop, skip and jump to to get to the present day. All the while keeping in mind um, various aspects of the magazines. Obviously there are a huge amount of independent magazines that have been produced over the last 100 years. So we decided to narrow the framework to those which, are, which were in our opposition. And that, doesn't, that often means political and full of protest and dissent, but also magazines can be quietly opposition. The Face, for example, was considered in the 1980s to be kind of an elitist, Soho uh, bound, behind the velvet rope, bunch of hipsters deciding you know, what height you should have on the turn up on your salvage jeans. In fact, it was also interviewing uh, Dennis Skinner, the Beast of Bolsover, the great MP who's still with us, thankfully, uh, looking at the miners' strike, looking at hard times in London in 1982 in the third year of Margaret Thatcher's reign. So it was always proposing an oppositional way of thinking, uh, proposing independent thought, and to a certain extent, alternative lifestyles. Um, so once we narrowed the framework to that, it wasn't easy, but it made our job much more clearer. Sure, you gave yourself a, a path to, to kind of walk down. Yeah, sure, we had to. And so you say you started with Blast. Yeah. So, so why Blast? Well, why was that your starting point? Well, uh, Blast, in many respects, was the beginning of, there were several points at the beginning of modernism, not least really the First World War. But um, the Vorticists were very influenced by the Futurists in Italy who produced their manifesto in 1909. There's, there's a lot of argument as to where modernism begins across the creative arts, the arts and in life. But Blast is a, is a helpful starting point because it was literally a blast against Victorianism, Victorian attitudes and Victorian repression. So it's full of these um, lists. It's a great, you know, 
magazines today, we're so used to them having lists, aren't we? What's in, what's out, what's good, what's bad. And they had blasted and blessed. And the things that were blessed were forward-looking, and the things that were blasted were the 60 years of Victorianism. So the other aspect to it, which only occurred to me afterwards, I don't know, Claire's much smarter than me, she probably thought about this all the time, was that it looked in high, at high and low culture in, with the same critical perspective. So it talks about setting up uh, circuses in Piccadilly Circus, for example. There's that great line in the magazine, one of the spreads which is in the show, which says, we whisper in your ear, London is not a provincial town. So it was anti-provincialism, it was anti-parochialism. Um, and in fact, that's a thread that continues throughout the show to this day, is that high and low culture are examined from a similar critical perspective. And that's, that strikes me as something that is quite magazine-y. There's something about the form of the magazine that... It, magazines are, or sometimes are, beautiful objects and things that you want to keep forever. But they're also, there's always this like, disposable aspect Yeah, I mean, they're ephemera, aren't they? These days, they can't be ephemera because um, of the market conditions in which they're produced. I, I, I think these days they're produced to be held onto and examined and loved over a period of time. It was only maniacs like me in the 70s <laughs> who treated this ephemera with a respect which at the time was thought beyond its due. You know, I was looking at a New Musical Express, which isn't in the show because it was produced by a corporation uh, from 1974 yesterday. I mean, this is how sad my life is. But I was examining it actually for an interview which is, which is informing my next book. And I was actually wondering about myself and the way in which I kept hold of those things because I thought that in that trash and ephemera area of the media, there was something worthwhile and I think that's one of the impulses behind the show is to, sh is to show that these documents are of worth and they're snapshots of a time that's long gone. And, and I think the thing that you do really well is, is bring that kind of narrative to it because I think that sometimes that the, the, um, just the outright collector will just hoard stuff. You'll, you'll just sure. gather things, but actually the skill to it is being able to tell a story within it. But maybe you could tell us a bit about what's your own personal history of this, because I see from the credits in the show, a lot of this stuff has come from your own personal archive. Yeah, I, I was always, um, I'm one of six, all three of my brothers were librarians. My eldest brother was uh, president of the American Library Association. We come from Hendon in North London, you know, uh, he, he, uh, he rose to those heights. There's obviously some kind of crazy OCD collecting gene within <laughs> attached to print. Um, I, I didn't become a librarian, I wasn't uh, academically successful enough. But um, still, nevertheless, I remember holding on to and keeping hold of magazines in my, uh, when I was eight or nine or ten my elder sister's rave magazines or petticoat later on and I used to look at them for the fashion and the music there's something about visual culture if it's expressed through music which is very interesting to me um, and then I had this I realized now this epiphany and it occurred in Hendon London NW4 in Church Parade in this newsagent in 1972 in July where I came across a copy of the magazine Friends, which is in the show, and that's F-R-E-N-D-Z. And this is the late flowering example of the underground press in this country. 
Um, and it was really my entry into a more mature and sophisticated world of media because it covered people such as David Bowie and Brian Ferry. It also covered protest culture. Um, it had great photography by the great Penny Smith. It had great writing by the great rock writer Nick Kent. It covered a kind of outsider culture, which was very glamorous to me as a suburban kid, which uh, I've never fallen out of love with. And so that I realize now, kind of looking back, was really the starting point of my love affair with visual culture. Uh, and so that outsider um, uh, edge you can see from the magazines in there, it, it, it continued right through. When someone walks around the exhibition in there, what do you want them to take away with them? What, what do you want the thing to be that sticks in their mind? Well, I think the, one of the things that informed our choice about it not being a purely contemporary um, uh, exhibition about purely contemporary magazines was that nothing exists out of, uh, you know, outside of context. And so we wanted people to realise that Private Eye, being launched in 1961, informs Mushpit, launched in 2011. But it also goes back to the week, Claude Coburn's paper uh, in 1948. And then further on, probably back to that oppositional stance taken by Blast. And I think that really tells the story about us Brits and our attitude to publishing. You know, we plug into a, a deep history of pamphleteering and troublemaking and piss taking. And, you know, all of those things which make media so joyful. Um, and so that's the main takeaway is that here is an alternative history, kind of an alternative social history of life in Britain as it has been lived and as it's lived today. Uh, in terms of like that context, like put, so putting this stuff in context, one of the things that really stuck with me is um, there's a, a magazine that you have out in there, um, it's, it's Harper's and Queen from 1977 and it's Peter York writing about the alternative media bug and in, in his piece there's a line that says in 1976, uh, the previous year, in 1976, a man could go to bed sane and wake up a magazine proprietor. <laughs> and the, like, that, like, the essence of that, uh, there was a piece in The Observer, maybe last weekend, based on this show. Yeah. And there's the same sense of surprise in there of like, did you know people are making magazines? Yeah. Did it? Well, it was great to have dinner with Peter last week, and he's really surprised, you know, that 41 years after that article, which was very important to me in my... I realised now I was studying, because I said he wasn't studying at school. I left school and home at 17, you know, with very little education uh, or qualifications. But actually, I was studying such magazines as Harper's and Queen for these uh, in, 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 uh, insights into this world. And I think it's interesting in that piece, and it's the reason we included it in there, is that he talks about self-publishing. It's 1977, so if anybody knows anything about that period, they might think of punk fanzines, sniffing glue, etc. But actually, he talks about there is this self-publishing business going on independently, but it covers Emma Tennant's Bananas, which is a literary newspaper. It's a really excellent literary newspaper. Contributors including J.G. Ballard but also new, uh, new Style, which was Mike Von Joel's proto-face, proto-lifestyle magazine. So he's really doing what he does so well, which we can, uh, people like me can only aspire to, which is putting 
a part of the culture under the microscope and explaining why it exists and why it's so interesting and exciting. He also, in that piece, talks about the last time that was happening, so pre-1977, was of course the heyday of the underground press 10 years earlier with IT, Oz and Friends. So are, are we in a situation where magazine publishing is just a perennial surprise? The, like just every 10, 20, 30 years, there's going to be a bubbling up of people going, hang on, there are people making magazines here. Right. Actually, it's a really big surprise to me as a, a print professional. I didn't really think it would happen again after the onset of digitalization and the crash of 2008. I mean, those two uh, events conspired to make people like me feel like a pit pony in a mining village, you know, <laughs> with clothes. And certainly, you know, I'd meet up with guys like Fraser, who I worked with 30 years ago. Um, and some would become the market gardeners. I mean, we didn't know what to do. There was no print outlet for us. Magazines were closing down, they were slimming down. I mean, I think if I contribute to an EMAP publication now, I'm probably being paid what I was paid 20 years ago. Uh, so that's the biggest surprise to me. But I think it also shows what you're talking about, is the, uh, the will without, will out. You know, uh, the, there is a generation of people younger people making magazines who went through that wash of digitization, went through that wash of the crash 10 years ago, and actually thought, fuck it, we're not just gonna go online. People like Sharan Dawali of um, Burnt Roti says, anybody can tweet, anybody can put a snark, a piece of snark, or fuck, even a funny piece, uh, through a tweet or online. But once you've done it, it's disappeared, it's gone into the ether. They realize that if you put it on the printed page, it's got permanence and it's there forever. So that's a really big surprise to me. And, and also, the, I, I think the way that these magazines that are coming up are looking back to what went before them to an extent, but also just making things up completely for themselves. The, yeah. you know, the, a, a lot of the magazines that you know, we see around us in the room do things that would just be wrong. <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you look at it from a conventional perspective, yeah. like, it's almost like they, they don't know the rules they're breaking. Like they're, they're just doing things completely themselves. Yes, exactly, and I, I think a lot of that enthusiasm for, that eclecticism really, comes from growing up online. And so the, there are no barriers really. At the same time as it made a lot of people lazy, it made those people really actively pursue all means of expression. That eclecticism is, is really apparent throughout. And, and the, I guess one of the, the other big effects that we have of being in a post-internet society. The, like, you know, the, the internet has happened and now we're all just living with it and that's all fine. Magazines are always related to the technology of the day. There's a, a thing in the show about um, private eye um, became possible because of photo lipo offset printing. And there's a, a line in there about publishing was suddenly available to anyone with a typewriter and letter set. Yeah. And when you look at what we have today, it's just the same again, but you're talking about Adobe Creative Cloud and you're talking about um, um, HP's Indigo prints. How do you see the magazines that are coming out of this new wave being affected by that technology? Well, it's available, you know, you can print, you can make a magazine on your own in your bedroom. It's, it's the same thing that's happened across the entertainment complex around the world. This is why the record companies are really 
in the ship really because and the studios are and all of those all of those ancillary businesses around the making of music just really don't know what to do or how to handle it so it's happened in film it's happened in music but the interesting thing about print is that it's got far more worth than say the vinyl re revival because it takes commitment care and consideration to come up with a magazine and to a certain extent collaboration as well all of those things you don't need to produce something online. And so, okay, I'm really pleased that you bring up the vinyl um, revolution because I, you can see that there are definite parallels there. But the thing that always irks me about it is that like, vinyl did genuinely go away. There was, a, there was a period of time when people were not listening to vinyl records. I don't think there was ever. <laughs> All right, okay, okay. People were not going out and buying new music no, that's true. on vinyl yeah, records. Yeah. And now they are, the, the factories can't keep up and the rest yeah. of it. But I don't think that there was ever a time when people were not going out and buying a print magazine. It's just that this other thing, the iPad came along, or the, like, you know, these are the technologies came. Yeah, and also the economic conditions in which magazines are produced changed as well. So just as much as the major corporations that publish magazines had to really slim down their staffs, I was at the weekend. I was with a, a bloke who works for National Papers, and he says you go into the tabloid papers now. There's a tiny staff, and it's all contributors. You know, it's all people filing copy uh, from outside of the offices. So they were really struck, and are being really struck. I mean, one of the big surprises of the show was to do some research and find out that Condé Nast closed UK Glamour because it, a circulation of 260,000 copies a month wasn't making it money. So, you know, the corporate model has definitely failed. But in between those chinks, the people that you're talking about kind of survived because they ploughed on and inspired other people to produce magazines at the same time. Absolutely. And so I'd say that one of the things that I talk about is <clears throat> with these magazines, it's, it's never been more exciting creatively because if you want to make a magazine today, you can. The difficulty is in actually getting your magazine out there. And the, so, in, in your book, um, The Face, there's a, an interview you did uh, with Nick Logan, and he talks about the fact that when they started The Face, if you wanted to get a nice cup of coffee in London, you had to travel to a specific place to get that. Or if, like, if you wanted to get like this coat, then you'd have to travel to London to go to that shop. And that's obviously incredibly restrictive, but if you're trying to put your product out somewhere, really great because if you know you get it in those places then job done whereas today you make your magazine you put all this time and effort into it how do you even start reaching an audience with it well i think it is difficult i think the internet is a boom there because um, i think what happened with digitization is that we all became cre niche creatures i'm a niche creature i plow this furrow and there are a couple of other people who try to as well that i'm incredibly defensive about them doing that and I suppose we're all like that, but it made niche creatures of us all. And so the expectations in publishing magazine, uh, once you set yourself up as a niche publication, mm -hmm. you realize that you're gonna be communicating to a niche audience. And so, yeah, necessarily you may have other jobs to produce that, but that doesn't diminish the spirit in which these magazines are produced and, and consumed as well, because the internet allows you the ability to find those 300, 500 people, those 1,000 followers on Instagram, who will all be interested in 
expanding the knowledge around that area. Hence, Sabat, you know, the most beautifully designed magazine, well, arguably one, one of the most beautifully designed magazines in the show, which looks at witchcraft from a feminist perspective. And Elizabeth, the editor's uh, new magazine is about, is Suspira, which looks at horror movies from a feminist perspective. I mean, who'd have thunk it, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago? I think the other thing to consider is that the people who are producing magazines now are not those from the past. One of the things about the underground press, which really led to the launch of Spare Rib, the great feminist magazine, was that the counterculture was really just another iteration of mainstream culture in the men did all the work or, you know, did all the hanging out while uh, women made the tea and typed up the copy, you know, or with the adornments in the magazine. These days, we have magazines produced by voices which haven't hitherto been given that voice, whether it's, a, you know, across, you know, from sex and sexuality through to race and identity. And that's a really encouraging thing, don't you think? Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, and actually, it's... I think one of the most interesting things is seeing the niches within niches that you get there. So actually, and, and like gender is a, a classic example where, you know, so even like when I grew up, there, there really were two genders. You, like you kind of had male and female. And actually, the, in the last five years, that has completely blown open. And the magazines that are coming along to represent different understandings of, of how you position yourself, how you refer to yourself. I mean, that's accelerating. It's, it's getting quicker and quicker. Yeah, because I think identity and migration, again, I realised it after we put the show together, are the major themes of today. You know, you think about everything from Brexit and Trump to, you know, designations on laboratory doors. Um, but so this show really does show that those key issues, overriding issues, uh, all being addressed uh, by contemporary magazines and have sporadically been addressed down the years. Mm. But because they've become so prominent, uh, they really are at the forefront of considerations among contemporary magazines, I think. And I think identity fits particularly well because the type of magazine you're talking about, they don't have budgets, they don't have a lot of money to pay a writer to go out and spend however long researching something, interviewing people, typing up their transcripts, and then writing an article. So actually the, the personal stuff works particularly well because it can be a person saying, this is my response yeah, to this subject. That's why we had the vitrine dedicated to Grenfell because it was really interesting to see what, say, Alka Dapani, who's a young architect and uh, academic, how she addressed Grenfell from a position of knowledge of architecture and cladding in particular um, in her little fancy mm. wrong mm. Um, because um, there is a d degree of expertise which is being expressed and communicated as well within these magazines. But I think within that as well there's also a danger because when everything is a personal opinion and so then you don't have that rigour of somebody who's gone out and done the research, yeah. the you know, and these are different things. The like you know, you, you, it's not to say that it's not okay to have a personal response, but I do think there's a danger within this excitement that actually, because the business models fall away, we end up with a, a type of magazine that just isn't being made anymore. I think that that's uh, being fought against by magazines from half. You know, I look over there. You know, Weapons of Reason 
delayed gratification, mm. accent, riposte, mm. gentlewoman, against that very personal, subjective, kind of creative responses to what's going on. You have these uh, magazines which have far more rigour than, say, the magazines produced uh, by the underground press, actually. So, okay, so thinking about the, the stuff from the underground, so, um, again, so I was really interested in the exhibition. Uh, there's a note that the offices of Friends and Oz were regularly raided by the police in the 60s and 70s. And I just thought, like, I mean, a magazine maker today would be so surprised if they got their door kicked in by the police. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's kind of like, you know, you can sort of publish whatever you want because no one's really looking. But because of what they did, there's a great book by John Sutherland which looks at decensorship, as he calls it. I think it's called Offensive Material. And he talks about the various cases from Lady Chatterley's through um, the John Retty book, Sisters of Night, through the various publications, but he includes in there the ways in which Master Tales, which came out of International Times, the old school kids issue, those various issues gradually eroded that repressive censorship. They really ended the job that Blast had set out to do, was to remove Britain from that yoke of Victorian repression, which really laid heavy on us. But it's interesting to talk to a very nice chap who worked at Peace News, Bill, I forget his surname, I think Claire will remember it. But um, he came along to the private view and he was telling me that in 1940, beginning of 1940, so within six months of World War II being declared, the police used to come around and regularly smash up Peace News presses. And so Eric Gill took up the slack and allowed his presses to be used to produce Peace News. So it ain't nothing new to have the authorities heavy <laughs> on your back. But I think the freedoms that have been gained by these people uh, are really self-evident. It is unimaginable for uh, uh, a, a publisher today to be uh, un under, under attack from the authorities and the establishment. And I guess the thing to recognise there is that's true in Britain, but absolutely not true in other parts of the world. So I guess the, the fight yeah. continues in other places. And if Trump has his way, you know, we'll all be back to that as well. So, I mean, these are very, uh, I think, very useful disseminators of um, oppositional views, you know, even down to the magazine Fuck Brexit or... Um, <laughs> There's a magazine called Fuck Brexit? Yeah, it's in the show. Yeah, it's really a very good magazine produced by this graphic designer, Dan Taylor. Uh, there's a, another publication produced by Scott King, who's a great designer and artist who designed the graphic identity of the show, uh, called Britlins, which is attached to a rolling exhibition he's got which is really about how post-Brexit Britain will become a kind of rat-ridden holiday camp. <laughs> so, you know, there's still a lot of uh, high-level, high high-gauge troublemaking going on, and that's good to see, isn't it? Have you seen Good Trouble? No. So the, this is, um, well, I'm sure I think how much I can say about it. So a magazine published in New York, uh, it is uh, designed by Richard Turley, so the guy from, uh, like, Bloomberg Business Week right. and MTV and stuff. And it's edited by a guy called Rod Stanley. Um, and it's a magazine of protest. The, the whole thing is just a, a series of people who uh, are saying this isn't okay. And in very different ways, they're putting their foot down. And the these are all offshoots of what's going on in America. Some dear friends of ours in New York are members of Rise and, Rise and Resist and 
they've been tutored by ACT. We're on to a different discussion here, but I think it's quite interesting. They've been tutored by all the people from ACT UP in the late 80s and early 90s. And so they'll go en masse to the restaurant in Trump Tower, and then one of them will start coughing and be attended to. And then they'll, they'll all start coughing, and it's basically a protest about what he was trying to do to the uh, health, um, to Medicare and Medicaid, uh, to Obamacare. But, you know, so that's, there's a lot more activism going on in the States, particularly on the East Coast. And then there are offshoots of that naturally that come through in print, I think. So, you know, hang around and that's where we'll be. <laughs> okay, so I mentioned earlier that um, we're looking for questions. So, um, who here has a, a question? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going and you can, like, uh, next time I ask, I want questions. <laughs> we're just gonna keep going until we <laughs> So this, is, this has been, the, the show is looking back um, at a hundred odd years of, of British infant matting making. What do you see for the future? Uh, I see a bright future, really, because I think the chips are down. And whenever the chips are down in the past, uh, print publishing has thrived. I think back to the early 80s, and as I mentioned, the face wasn't all too cool for school. Um, and there were a lot of publications that came out around that time. Actually, the big parallel with today, and I'm not saying anything new, uh, uh, people far more politically astute than me have talked about how we are returning to the 30s in terms of a political climate. And I look back at the 30s now and how that's represented in the show. And um, we've got Axis, which is Mavanwi Piper's avant-garde art newspaper magazine. We've got Night and Day, which was uh, Graham Greene's um, British New Yorker, looking at high and low culture. Uh, I mentioned Claude Coburn's uh, The Week, the precursor to Private Eye. There's a lot of examples in the 30s, and I think that's where we're at now in terms of the political, geopolitical climate and also in terms of print. I'm also really um, heartened by the involvement of people who haven't previously had a voice, because I think they've got a lot to say which hasn't been, they haven't been a, given permission to say in the past. Absolutely. So I, so I see the uh, future as being pretty bright for, the, for these publications. And so I'm interested in the, in the accessibility. So we ran a, a magazine event at the start of 2017, um, and it was a, a, a feminist um, publishing evening. It was just like really great fun and like really lively and stuff. And someone asked a question during the event of like, well, what about ethnic minority? Like, well, what about like black and, and Asian minority? And at the time, I just wasn't. I mean, like Unk was going on. Like the Unk are, are based here. Wasn't a lot outside of that, and in that last couple of years, it's completely blown sure. up. There, there's loads Third of stuff flow, Gowden, you know, it goes on burnt roti, exactly. And so, uh, kind of uh, the genie's out of the bottle, um, and I think uh, young people in particular are understanding that this is a major communication device, which maybe they hadn't come across as they grew up, but they're now turning to because they see how effective it is. Okay, any questions this time? Here yeah. we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've, you've mentioned young people. And it seems to me that what you're saying is this is now only a project for young people. And I'm kind of going to have to disagree with this. 
because I think people like us that have been around in this industry for a very long time have still got a really hard to pay in, in independent magazines um, in numerous ways. I perhaps to actually use our expertise and our knowledge to show a younger generation how to do it, but also to combat this kind of cultural stigma around ableism, which is, you know, as a magazine, what, what I'm doing. You know, you talk about feminism as having a resurgence in independent printing and, you know, now other different cultural identities. Um, what about magazines? Oh, I agree with you. You know, I've talked about um, young people. I've focused on young people quite a lot in this tour. But yeah, I think that people of my age and younger uh, can certainly contribute. And you know, with our knowledge as well, and with our experience, and uh, I don't see it as being totally focused on the under 25s, that's what I'm saying. Maybe I'll give that impression. Of course, I'm 26, so I'm on that side. But um, yeah, I agree with you that, um, I don't know that ageism, it, it probably exists within employment circles, but in this field, I don't think it's a barrier myself. I don't see it as being a barrier. In terms of employment or in terms of Consuming the well, consuming as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you know, if somebody of my great age can read Mushpit and really enjoy it and sometimes contribute to it, then there's hope for us all, really. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Um, you were saying how you know you might not know where to start now if you're producing a print magazine, and obviously there is a resurgence, but. We're now tackling digitalisation as well. So, what do you think makes a successful print magazine now? Does it have to be controversial? Or I, no, I, think it, I, I think it has to have a point of view. It's that niche thing. It's, you know, uh, ploughing a furrow, which maybe other people are doing but not doing as well as you think they are, or maybe it's not being done at all. But I think it's really necessary to have a point of view now. There's, there's a, a parallel in, I believe, what's going on now. In, what happened in the music business um, in the post-punk period when lots of independent labels, thousands of them in Britain, came and went. Some lasted two singles. Some became the basis for multinational businesses. But it was a period when young people grabbed hold of this format, the single, which had been really selling big, and was you know the idea of the, the Beatles or something in the 60s, and then into the and then disappeared through album sales in the 70s, and was just the preserve of pop. It became a politically, uh, uh, it became a political mode of expression, and I mean that in both big big P and small P. And I, if you look at that explosion, which is very very fertile. There were so many different musical styles and viewpoints being expressed, and I really think that now is the time to explore that in print. And I, you know, I think the the magazines. If I look at the, back, they're all new magazines. The latest issues, they're on, on the back wall. There, I mean, there's so much space in between those to plough your own furrow. I think, don't you? Oh no, absolutely. I, I think that you you're right on the money in terms of it's about the idea. I, I think that answers both those questions in terms of, you know, why would you even begin doing this in the first place? It's not to make a lot of money. 
So the only reason to do it is because you've got something to say that you passionately believe in and you want to put it out there. As Paul was saying, a, a print magazine in a digital age can be a tremendous way of packaging up what you think about the world and, and putting it in front of people. Yeah, because the yoke of expectations has been lifted as well. When Nick Logan launched his magazine, the face in 1980 as a magazine professional he was expecting it to become world beating you know those were always and you know he would do a deal with Condé Nast and it would be bought in LA and Rome and, it, uh, Rome and uh, Tokyo everyone knows that those years of the magazine those sales of the magazines have long gone and so the expectations aren't so heavy on you anymore I don't believe I mean Alper Dupani makes a hundred copies of her, of her issue because she uses the uh, um, uh, college uh, photocopying machine and she gets tired after making it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great magazine. It goes to a hundred people. People on Instagram see it, maybe thousands see it. It's like a little seed of an idea which is her expression of her worldview on this uh, subject of architecture. That's, that's, where, uh, that's where it lies, I think. With the exhibition, having uh, curated it through your archive pool, um, with, with, with it all being on display now, is there anything on the collection that you would have done differently? Or that's really interesting now to kind of put all together, curated in that way. What would be maybe your thoughts around that? We'd have made the newsstand more cluttered. <laughs> <laughs> we really wanted it to be. I took a photograph of the one at Sloan Square Station, drew some dodgy sketches. Ian Donnelly, who really built the exhibition, realised it really well. But we, it does look great in pink as well. It is a bit polite. <laughs> and we wanted, you know, those racks that... Um, so the idea of that was you get through two rooms where, you know, things are on walls or under glass. And then you actually get to hold and read magazines because that's after all the idea of it. But um, that's one thing. I can't really, you know, I'm not saying it's the best exhibition ever, but I think in a way we use my collection, uh, the Counterculture Archive uh, of John May, who worked at Friends and IT and knew all the people at Oz and had his own magazine, The Beast, which is a great animal rights magazine. Um, we kind of cut our cloth accordingly. We wanted it to not be modest, but we wanted it to be utterly accessible and not too grand and not things behind glass. Or, and also to have an equivalence between the face and the thread, which was a tiny little literary magazine circulated around Soho in the 80s. Or NATO, the um, architectural post-punk magazine produced in the 80s and Graham Greene's magazine. We wanted it to be like that experience of when you go to a newsstand, you're almost overwhelmed, unless you know what you want. And there's such a great choice there, and it's very chaotic and organic. And I think that's, I think we achieved that to a certain extent. For me, I would want more chaos, but then that's my It seems, it seems a real shame that it's going to be more packed away at the end of August. Are there any plans for it to continue to tour or? Yeah, there, there are plans. I, I don't know. I don't know uh, how far down the road we are with those, but 
I see it as the beginning of, well actually, for me speaking personally, um, it, it's, an extent, it, it's an extension of what I do already, which is, I realise, look at independent media and look at independent figures, whether they're George O'Dowd or Goldie or Malcolm McLaren, the subject of my next book, these people who operate you know, in their own areas and do it themselves, and these magazines are very much part of my project really. Um, but it, what was really great, I think, was um, to have achieved the mind map, which uh, we always wanted to do, didn't we, Claire? We started off, we knew that was going to be one of the elements there. And so I drew it out on a, a rough on an A4 sheet, and then Claire said, yeah, that's okay, but how does it really work? <laughs> and so I had a coffee cup, and I just drew round the coffee cup the concentric circles of interest, whether it's art or design or architecture. And she said, yeah, no, that's great. And so then I built it from that, just sellotaping bits of A4 together, <laughs> rolled them up and took them to Scott King, who threw his hands up in horror. He loved it, yeah. but it just, you know, just looked, I'm not a designer. But he gave it to a designer called Rhys Atkinson, who has ultimate patience, it seems to me. And he produced it over a period of about a month. And so it came from just that small A4 to that entire wall there. Have you um, still got the sheet of A4 paper? I have, yeah. yeah. There you go, the collector. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not to throw those away. <laughs> Any final questions before we finish up? Um, I was curious to know if you would consider including other independent magazines from other parts of Europe, maybe the world, in a yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think so. At one point, we were thinking about having an independent, uh, uh, an international section. Yeah. So we'd recognise um, Apartamento or any of the other magazines that, that are around. Um, that wouldn't have worked here, I don't think. We had to really focus to get the idea across to a lot of people. You know what? There's a lot of new magazines out there. Really? I just thought it was private line. So we had to keep it very tight on that. But in the future, I would definitely like to include an international section or produce an international exhibition. That would be an ambition of mine. And then one final question, if I can. Um, how is it possible to, for, for magazine lovers to just keep all these magazines in London? Because this <laughs> yeah. is so get, get a storage unit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've got. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, it is very difficult, isn't it? Because print doesn't have to take up space. <laughs> I mean, I've several times had to have culls due to partners just getting absolutely sick of it. But uh, I managed to, there you go, I managed to keep hold of, you know, what I always kept hold of, say, that first issue of Friends that I bought, or the Anarchy in the UK that I bought on my 17th birthday in Gooch Street. You know, they were never going to be thrown out. So occasionally I had to hide them away. <laughs> before they get into the local jungle so. Alright, well Paul, thank God you kept all of them. Thank you again for coming and putting it onto a show. Um, and thanks for the view for oh, Thanks for having me. Okay, that's all for this week. Please do take a look at the Stack website if you get a chance. And as I said before, let us know what you think. It's really, really useful. You can reach me on steve at stackmagazines.com. I'm going to be trying not to look at emails too much while I'm away, but once I'm back, we're going to be cracking straight on with making those changes and tweaks, and all of your thoughts and ideas will be much appreciated.
Thanks very much for listening all the way to the end. I know this was a long one, but we'll be back with our regular weekly episodes towards the end of August. So keep an eye on your feed for more coming then.